This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be speaking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Sarah Sugarman, the founder and CEO of Lulu and Georgia. Sarah grew up in the design industry. Her father ran a rug showroom that had been started by his father in the 1950s. When Sarah came on board the family firm in the 2000s, she became intrigued by the rise of online shopping. So she started e-commerce platform Lulu and Georgia as a side project. It was an instant hit and has since grown by leaps and bounds. I spoke with Sarah about why she's committed to keeping Lulu and Georgia online only, how starting a family made her a better CEO, and why, when it comes to the e-commerce revolution, we're just getting started. This podcast is sponsored by Laloy, maker of rugs, pillows, and wall art for the thoughtfully layered home. Laloy's spring introductions include their first recycled and washable rugs, which are designed with the same care and intention given every Laloy rug as well as a much-anticipated new collaboration with interior designer Gene Stouffer. See it all at theloyrugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I, rugs.com. Follow them on Instagram and TikTok at Rugs to see the rugs from even more angles. This podcast is also sponsored by The Shade Store. The Shade Store offers designers everywhere a simplified resource for premium, handcrafted custom window treatments. With a team of dedicated design consultants available to guide you through the material and product selection process, measure and install professionals to ensure a perfect fit, and 140 showrooms nationwide, the Shade Store offers the bespoke customization of a high-end workroom backed by the support of a national organization. Let the Shade Store take care of the window treatments for you. Sign up for a trade account today at theshadestore.com slash trade. And now, on with the show. Before we get into all of the things I want to talk to you about with where business is and what you're, what you're thinking with all of that, I want to talk about how this whole business came together. So where's the best place to start there? Lulu and Georgia is a spinoff, really, of my family business. My grandfather started a rug showroom in 1955 in West Hollywood. He was really a pioneer in the L.A. design scene. It was a to-the-trade showroom and uh, serviced high-end residential and hospitality customers. And my dad took over the business, grew it, and he wanted me to take over. My brother's a musician and wasn't going to do it, so it was kind of on (laughs) me to, to carry on the legacy I was working, it was about 2009, and I was working in the magazine industry in New York, and my dad had me work for our sales rep in New York City, Gary Given, who I I don't know if he really wanted an assistant, but we ended up becoming (laughs) close friends, and he took me around all over New York with a big suitcase full of carpet samples, and we would go to the D&D and all the New York showrooms, and I really learned about that business and people that were doing it differently and the importance of building a brand. And then I went back to Los Angeles and my dad really taught me the business. He took me on buying trips. We traveled all over together. He also taught me how to run a profitable business. He really gave me free reign to implement 
my ideas on how to bring the business into the future. He was friends with a lot of interior designers like Barbara Berry, who really gave me advice and uh, oh, mentorship in those early the days. Legend. Yes. So I, you know, it was a really an amazing experience working for my dad and one that I'll always treasure. Um, and ultimately, out of his trust in me, you know, came Lulu in Georgia, which is named after my father and my grandfather. <laughs> well, so, and and make that connection for us. So you were explaining to me that it was a, a little bit of a side hustle of yours at, at one point. How, yes, how... It, it was definitely a side <laughs> hustle. At that time, I was vice president of Decorative Carpets, which meant that I ran the showroom. So I ran our LA showroom and managed the salespeople. And it was a popular showroom and designers would be in all day. So my my day job was occupied by the showroom and and really on nights and weekends I would spend working on Lulu and Georgia. The the need for or the desire to start Lulu and Georgia really came out of the um the recession in 2008 and designers were shopping online and I saw that my peers, you know, were shop, were shopping online and the industry was just changing. And on these international buying trips with my dad, I realized that we could import you know, rugs at a more accessible price point, but still really design forward. And that's kind of how the idea started. But um, but I would work on this tiny cubicle on one side of the showroom. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, the showroom is right next to Craig's, which is a really popular restaurant in LA. And a lot of celebrities go there. And I remember working really late at night, and it would just be like, full of paparazzi outside the, you know, outside the, the windows. While you were toiling away, yeah, in the, while in the I was dark, toiling away to... <laughs> with on spreadsheets trying to upload products. I mean, you know, vendors were trying to reach me. I think during the day, and I wouldn't even get back to them because I just was so like it was. It was such an on the side, you know, project. Because really, your day job was was running that was running that showroom. Yes, and I, that was the future. That was my plan was to take over the family business. This was kind of a little side thing that we thought you know, let's just dip our feet in, see what happens. But really, I mean, it was my responsibility was to make sure that the family business was was run well. And the idea to, to dip your, your feet in, as you say, was was what was to was to see what what an internet based business would would look like? Or, or what, what was your thinking? I was worried about the future of our family business because I did see the industry shifting and changing. And so I okay. thought, okay, let's dip our toe in as a way to see if this might be a way to bring our company into the future. So what happened? So how did it play out for, for decorative carpets and, and your family business? Well, De I, I, I don't mean to say decorative carpets, I guess, you know, it's a great, great company. And um, once Lulu and Georgia took off and it was clear I wasn't going to continue um, that business, my, my father ended up selling to Stark. So, hmm. um, but I guess I meant, you know, in terms of our family legacy, you know, moving into the online business was kind of the next phase. And so what did your father make of the fact that you were on the side working on this, this internet business that you were trying to hatch? I mean, I'm so grateful he was so supportive. And I mean, I needed his support in order to start it because we relied on a lot of the, um, we relied on decorative carpets, warehousing and accounting department. And, you know, so I, he was very supportive. But at the same time, he wanted to make sure that we were still running the, the family <laughs> business and that I was still, you know, you know, that was our, that was our bread and butter so he you know right. he wanted to make sure that that was still happening <laughs> so so he said sure I'll, I'll help you as much as i can but also make sure the trains are running on time exactly family business and and how were you 
how were you doing this on your on your? What did you know about starting a, 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 an internet business, an e-commerce business? You know, I did know how to import rugs. I knew how to design product. I had a really good grasp of the of the interior design industry, both from working in New York and Los Angeles. So, you know, I did know a, a really good part of it. But in terms of the the online, you know, the marketing, the technology, all of that was kind of learned as we go. And I definitely made, you know, there was a ton of, you know, mistakes and fumbles in the in the beginning. So be, you know, that was that was part of it. That was part of learning, kind of learned on the job. I remember my dad asking my dad if I could go to business school. And he was, you know, he was always just kind of like you learn on the job. There, There's no um, education, like, you know, being thrown into it and, you know, learning how to swim. So was there a, a, a team that you brought in or was there a platform that you were using early on to to get the site up and running? A team? No, no. <laughs> I was doing everything. And like I said, I was working... I, you know, we would go, I remember being on um, sales trips with, you know, so we'd go to like, you know, different places in the United States trying to sell our, our rugs to designers and, you know, getting customer service calls from Lulu and Georgia customers because we I think we used Grasshopper back in those days. So it would like go directly to my phone. So it was like, no, <laughs> okay. I, there was no team. I was doing everything, <laughs> but we had no back end system. So literally we printed every single order. We would manually write the purchase orders to the vendors. And then right. any correspondence with the customer would be stapled around in these packets. And we'd put the order <laughs> numbers on the packets. And then if a customer called, we I'd like run around the office trying to find the like packet with the order number. I mean, it was a mess. <laughs> like I had no idea what I was doing. I think that that, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of scrappiness, a lot of like kind of just passion for let's make this work. And um, and, you know, we realized really quickly what didn't work and then and then pivoted. I love that. I love the whole scrappy story. So what kind of product were you putting up initially? What were you what were you offering to people? So the front end, the front end looked like a site. There was just no back end. So <laughs> it was you, but there it was, was you but on the, the, back the front end looked like a site and it had, and it had beautiful graphics and it always, we always had a strong brand perspective. Um, we were importing rugs from the very beginning. So those were, and those were our own designs and our exclusive products. So we were kind of vertically integrated from the start. And then we, we sold, we, we sold other product too, um, mainly from, from dropship vendors at that point. So but we had we had a robust product catalog even from the beginning. But I, I mean, inventory we had to manually update inventory. There was no EDI, like literally going through each product and manually updating it. It was it was crazy. And then we had a phone answering system where we would make it seem like there was different departments, but it all basically went to me and then one other guy I recruited from my family business to help me. And and at, at what point did you realize it was starting to get? Traction. It sounds like it was a couple of years in before you really felt. No, the very first day I knew that we had something. We had built up some demand in the influencer space before and, and designers before we had started. And so people were anticipating the launch. I think we might have put teasers in social media so people had seen some of the product. So the, the very first day we, you know, I'm all ready to launch, had worked on this for like years and um and the site crashed and i remembered it was you know devastating and i felt really helpless and there was no one to turn to because i had no partners or employees and my my dad i remember telling him but he was busy running the business and was kind of like figure it out and um it was such a metaphor of things to come that first day you know of just being thrown in and realizing that you have to persevere 
and yeah. you know figure it out and that's how it still feels today sometimes so so I knew I knew from the very beginning but we also had some really successful rugs upon launch we had a rug called the painted desert rug followed by another really popular rug called the LED rug, which was a collaboration with Taylor Sterling, who was an influencer. And these rugs would just sell out. I mean, they were so popular. We would assemble these wait lists and like, you know, pages long of people who wanted to wait for, for, for these rugs and they'd wait months and I'd call them up and tell each person <laughs> that you, it was like, I used to work for Oprah um, and O Magazine and Oprah and Gail. And um, one of my jobs there was telling was I got to, there was this one project I got to work on where I got to tell magazine readers that they won a spa trip with Oprah and Gail to Miraval. And it was such a fun job, you know, telling customers like, or magazine readers that they won this trip. That's how it felt when I would tell people <laughs> that they were going to get an LED rug. Like they were so excited and it was so rewarding. And I knew, I, I mean, I knew that there was um, this buzz and you know, there was this excitement around the brand and I knew we, you know, we had something. Well, so I love all that. So you had, you had reached out to some designers and, and let them know what you were doing. You, you were build, building a, a social media following early on, which you have this massive social media following today, which is impossible to build like that today. But in the early days, you were able to, you were able to do it. Yeah, I mean, it was a very different time there, you know, Instagram had just started and that was such a perfect platform for a visual brand like us. And the influencer community was so um, supportive and there was, um, you know, an excitement around growing our businesses together. And, and, and so, yeah, I think social media helped us a lot in the beginning, especially because we didn't have money. We invested so little money, you know, it was basically to get the site up, but um so we, so, you know, we weren't doing any paid advertising. It was all organic. It was all through the influencer community, social media and, and word of mouth. And you, and you hadn't taken on any early investment and that's, that's a theme. I think that that's something that sets us apart from, um, from most e-commerce companies and also from our competitors is we've taken on, you know, zero funding. So we really had to rely on our own cash flow and um, profitability to grow. And I think most people like early on, I got so much, so, so much advice from people that we could, if we didn't take on um, BC money, that we'd be crushed. And the truth is we're not in a winner takes all market. And, and you know, that, that didn't happen. I think honestly, not taking on money allowed us to grow the brand and really focus on um, brand building in a way that maybe wouldn't have been possible had we taken on investment. Because you think you might've, might've lost some of the control and, and, and some of the ability to, to steer it. Yeah. And I think the expectation sometimes to grow at all costs, that's not necessarily bad for, for some people, depending on what their, um, you know, what their vision for the company is. But my vision was to, to build a really strong brand. And I didn't want to have that compromised by, um, you know, possibly unrealistic expectations. And we were able to, to grow quickly because we had built such a great brand because, you know, that that's why people shop with us because, you know, we have created a lifestyle that they, they want to emulate. Well, so, so tell us about that. Tell us about this brand that you've built. Tell us about what makes your site so alluring to, to so many people. 
I think it's really that we have um, we have exclusive products. We have a really design forward aesthetic. Um, we have beautiful imagery. I mean, we shoot all of our own imagery in house, and I think that that helps create the story that you know people want to people want to be inspired and want to be able to um, see themselves in this space. So I think we do a really good job of creating that world for the customer. And, and as you said early on, there were a few, there, there were items that were just big hits for you and that, and that people, right, were, were lining up for. Yes. And I think that's, you know, we really, you know, like I mentioned, the Painted Desert rug and the LED rug, and then later on the Zero rug, like we had these, we had these iconic rugs and we've always kind of had these hit products that, um, that, that customers love. Those hit products, a lot of them also have come from our collaborations. And so those collaborations, I think, are another reason that customers shop with us and, you know, come to the site. We have, you know, we have great licensee partnerships with, you know, designers like Sarah Sherman Samuel and Jake Arnold and Annie Lee Parker, Hadia Williams. So we, we've really um, made that a big part of our, our brand as well. We, we talked earlier on about so you're you're doing this on the side and and dad's being supportive um but but eventually this gets to a to a point of of scale and it and it's time for you to step away and and just work on this so so tell me about tell me about that time and 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 when that happened you know it happened gradually so you know i think <laughs> I, I realized that I couldn't necessarily manage the showroom, but then I moved upstairs, which was like an office we had upstairs. So it was like, it was a gradual move. It didn't happen. It wasn't, there was a day where we were like, okay, right. now I'm going to focus on Lulu and Georgia, but it did become not manageable to do both. And it was clear that Lulu and Georgia had a path forward. And so really once my, my oldest daughter was born, which was in um, 2015. So that was, you know, a couple of years into the business was when I realized that I can no longer work weekends and nights. Like, you know, I, I mean, maybe I was working nights, but I, I can no longer, you know, <laughs> spend all my time on the business. I had a baby to take care of too. And so I think that was a turning point in realizing, okay, I need to just focus on Lulu and Georgia and see where that takes us. I can't, I can't be doing both anymore. I have to hire some people. I have to, you know, become a real business now. I can't do everything myself. Right. As kids will will force you to 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 make a lot of changes in yes. your in your life, right? Yes. First of all, having having kids, you know, I think really helped the business because it did force me to um to delegate, to form a a team that I trusted. Um, and to focus on strategy because I am a, I'm a person who, you know, you can get so into the weeds as a CEO and that's not where CEOs should be, right? CEOs should be mm. watching the game from up above and having kids kind of forced me to, to, to really focus where I needed to be. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind designers about one of the benefits of the Shade Store's trade program. Trade exclusive access to the Shade Store's COM program for Roman shades, drapery, and cornices. Combined with the Shade Store's extensive collection of more than 1,300 in-stock materials, the creative possibilities are virtually endless. Visit theshadestore.com trade today to sign up for a trade account and learn more. And now, back to the show. By that point, what was the team and, and, and what did you have to put in place after that? 
at the time that Vivian was born, um, we had like two employees and were really like, I was really doing, um, we were all doing everything, you know, we were all the customer service and the buyers and, you know, and marketing. And I had some freelance people and, you know, some of those people in the early days still work with me now, but then we, we built, we moved out of the family business offices and got our own office. It was like this (laughs) windowless office. Um, Literally there were no windows and I, I think I was just trying to to keep costs low and we hired some people and, and, you know, then it started feeling more like a real business. And really those were some of the most fun times at Lulu in Georgia. I mean, the people that are still here that were here then it was, it was really an exciting, exciting time. Well, and, and give listeners a sense of, of just how big you are today. Today we have about 110 employees. So, you know, at that time I'm talking, maybe we had five and most people had no experience. I think they, you know, a lot of people were hired just out of college. So it was, it was definitely a different, <laughs> different, different environment than now. Well, and, and the 110, so wh- what are all those different people doing? Help us understand with an e-commerce business, what are all the divisions of labor are for people? So um, we do everything in-house. We have a marketing team. They do our performance marketing and our brand marketing. We have a creative team. So they do all of our photo shoots in-house. Uh, we have photographers in-house. We you know, have graphic design and copywriting under that department. We have a, uh, a buying department, a planning department, a product development department department. On the, we have technology on the op side. We have operations. We have supply chain accounting, finance. So um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different different teams. And I know that you have strong feelings about not wanting to lurch into physical stores in a, in a meaningful way. Tell me, tell me how you're thinking about that. So one of the reasons I started Lulu in Georgia was because I saw the industry shifting online. Designers were shopping online. I remember it getting increasingly harder to get designers to come into the showroom and even to schedule meetings in their offices. And my peers, my friends, they were also shopping online. And that has only grown since starting the company in 2012. You know, most most moms work and don't have time to go in store and browse. And I personally love online shopping. I love buying things when I'm on a plane or lying in bed. And, you know, I love getting the package at the door. Like, I love the whole experience. So I feel like, you know, the focus for us has always been online and there are so much growth potential there. And I think sometimes when you start, you know, dipping into this omni-channel approach, you know, it's like you become, things become watered down or the e-commerce focus becomes watered down. I also feel like it's challenging to make a store inspiring. Um, especially with needing a large footprint to show the product. So I'm grateful we made the choice to not open stores. And, um, you know, I think probably others um, now are are wishing they didn't have so many stores. (laughs) Well, that that does seem to be the case with with many businesses is that they are wishing they didn't have as many stores. And and as you were saying earlier, many of those companies had venture capital money that was pushing them to – expand their footprint or their their presence and and that w- was was challenging for many of these companies. Yeah, and I think it's easy I think it's easy to kind of say like okay, well, how are we going to grow? Let's open stores, right? Like that's that feels like that makes sense. But I think that there's a lot of growth potential online, you know, and I think e-commerce is really in its infancy. 
I think we're just at the beginning. And there's so much, you know, technology that's going to come out to make e-commerce easier. I mean, it's it's easier to build a site now. I mean, we talked about it being harder to get a social media following. Maybe, I don't know. I think that there's new, you know, new channels like TikTok that might not be as hard. But, um, but it definitely is easier now to open a Shopify store. So I think that that's, you know, technology is only going to help advance e-commerce. But we also have a ton of opportunity um, with, uh, you know, new and new product categories, enhanced product categories uh, with international expansion. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot, a lot we can do with just with with just online. Well, so you mentioned TikTok and I'm I'm curious to hear your perspective. A, A lot of trade companies that I talk to think, oh, that's a waste of time. The kids are on there watching dance videos. What do you think about it? You seem to have quite a big following on TikTok. So so what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that that people have moved away from Instagram um, and Facebook into TikTok. And I don't think it's just kids. I, I know that it's people. Um, it's our buyers and people our age. And, um, you know, I think I think these these social media um new platforms and, and just in general, embracing technology, especially as an online business is, is very important and keeping an open mind. I think that, you know, I think that's true of our industry. The home decor industry is that it's maybe harder to move forward into the future, but you know, TikTok, it's not that it's so different than any other social media platform. And I think that um, if that's where the buyer is, then that's where we'll be. I, I think TikTok is a lot of fun for, for people. I'm not personally like, you know, on TikTok. I'm still kind of on, in, on the Instagram train. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I think it's fun and, 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 you know, a great platform. It's not just for kids. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad we've driven that home for the industry. But it yeah. gets to this bigger issue, I think, because, of course, you're right. The industry is slow to adapt to new ideas and try new things, whether it's TikTok or, or simply selling online at all. And all for the reason, of course, is uh, has been this conversation around exclusivity. Here I am with this really high-end trade product that I really want to sell exclusively to designers, am I really going to put it onto an e-commerce platform? I, I get it. I think th- I think that you want to, um, in, in the high-end um, showrooms, you want to maintain the exclusivity and the mystery behind the products. And so you, you don't want to put everything out there. And so I understand why maybe those, those platforms have been, um, you know, not as adapted by the industry. As you say, part of the industry feels perhaps the exclusivity is part of the value, but also all of these companies have to look out the next five to ten years and and where are they where are they going? And I don't know I don't know how you think about so coming up in the to the trade business as you did. I don't know what that looks like to you now when you look at the PDC or you look at La Cienega and, and, and a lot of these areas where they're catering to the to the trade. What does that what does that look like to you? I mean, I think that's that's one of the reasons going back to the beginning of why I started Lulu in Georgia. I mean, the PDC is pretty empty. And I think that um, that is sad to many, but it, it just means things are changing. And um, designers are shopping differently. We have a very large um, 
trade customer base. And we're really looking to grow that side of the business. And, you know, it's a business I know well. I actually recruited one of our um, salespeople from Decorative Carpets, who I had hired then to now work at our company. And she kind of formed the trade department here. And I think because of my knowledge of trade, we know how to service the, um, the trade community. And they have a dedicated trade sales team. They have a dedicated trade customer service team here. We know that what they want in terms of, you know, their discounts and also, um, you know, trade exclusive access to products. So I think that we're um, we're well equipped to kind of service them through the future. But but yeah, I mean, I think that's changing. So tell me about your trade program and, and, and tell me about your, your trade discount since you, since you mentioned it. I mean, how do you think about it? How do you structure it? What is your, what is your trade discount and how do you work with them? Um, we offer 20% off to the trade normally, and then we offer special discounts um, at different times of the year um, or extra percentages off at different times of the year. Because the um, our trade sales team has worked in the trades, they didn't work with e- from, for e-commerce companies. I think it's more of a, a a higher service level, seeing the designers in person, really finding out. I mean, we review monthly what they're wanting, what they're what they're not. Would they review with me and come back to me and say, "This is you know how the designers are feeling. This is what they like, what they don't like." Because it's very different than um, than our D 2 C customer base. And, and I think that a lot of times companies treat them similarly. So, so we're really, we're really trying to cater to them and their needs. So you go and visit designers. Yes. So tell me about that. I don't, because that, I don't. That pers- is, that is, no, not you personally. Those days are over for you personally. No, I shouldn't say those days are over. I would love to, I would love, I would love to get the suitcase back and be carrying around my Oh yes. I'm sure you'd be loving to no, love those carpet I, samples I, around. I, would, I know you're missing I it. The, yes. The trade team does. They both do it in their, uh, so we have West coast and East coast representation. So they'll do it in their cities, but they'll also travel and visit designers and set up meetings and kind of the, the old way that we used to set up presentations for designers. I think now they do more probably on Zoom than I, I didn't mm. obviously do that back when I was working for my family business. But yeah, they'll set up they'll set up presentations where designers can touch and feel the product. Because that's just what I was going to ask you. And that's always one of the arguments about or the, the challenge of thinking about e-commerce is the touch and the touch and feel and why so many in the industry think, oh, we'll forever have showrooms because people will forever want to come and touch and feel. And I think that there is always going to be a market. I agree with that for people who really want to touch and feel something before they buy. But I think that more and more customers are... Um, you know, are, are becoming okay with not having that. And, and e-commerce technology is getting better so that we can kind of describe and get that feeling without touching and feeling. I think a lot of people also, they don't even have the time for that to be an option or they don't live in a place where that's an option. So, you know, we're, we're catering to those people as well. It's interesting though. So you've chosen, I mean, before you were speaking disparagingly of omni-channel, but in a way you've created your own omni-channel with with people going out and right and and, and calling on people because I think that's that's something that that most e-commerce businesses don't do, and I think I think that's very smart. Yes, I mean I don't know. Um, those people are still buying on the site, so I guess mm. in terms of not being omni-channel, we have one method of checkout for our whole, you know, the whole entire business. So right. I guess in that way, we are not omni-channel. But yes, in terms of the ways that we market to customers, you know, we we do that in person as well. And and what else do you find the trade really wants today? What's what's meaningful to the to the trade customer? Do you find? 
I think they want exclusive product. I think they want early access to to product. I think, um, you know, obviously the discounting is is important as well. Um, mm. I think they really want the service. I think from an e-commerce company, you know, they're going, they don't know if they're going, if something goes wrong with the order, who do I call? Do I just have to wait on a customer service line or email a generic inbox? I think that part is is worrisome to them, especially when they're dealing with high-end clients. And is the is the trade customer, is that the fastest growing component for you at, at, the, at the moment? This year, they're actually growing faster than, than our D2C customer. And obviously, they have a very high lifetime value because they repeat purchase. Right. Um, yeah. So, so they are very valuable customers. And and what do you find them mostly gravitating towards? With all the many things that you offer on the site, what what's the what's the trade really interested in from you? They're interested in all of our exclusive products and our collaborations. We see them buying a lot of products from our collaborations with other designers. Interesting. Okay. And so why do you think that is? That I think that that's a peer, you know, uh, um, that they admire or, mm. or work with or know. And so um, they know their style and it's a little bit of a seal of approval from a, from a designer. I mean, I think that's probably why the um, D2C customers are also, are also um, buying a lot from our collaborations. Interesting. I, I ask in part because uh, one of the discussions one always ends up having with people running an e-commerce business or is is the customer acquisition cost discussion, right? And and that seems to have become much more challenging, much more expensive in, in recent years. I assume the same is, is is true for you. We've actually been more become more efficient with our marketing. So meaning our, you know, our cost to acquire customers actually gone down. Um, and I think that's because we've gotten smarter. We have more data. Um, we know what works and doesn't work. So we're much more efficient with our spend than we were when we were in prior years. And, and where do you find yourself focusing a lot of that spend? We still focus a lot on um, the social platforms. Um, we focus on Google. We um, have affiliate marketing program email. I mean, we, we use, a, we spend a lot of money on catalog and direct mail. That's was actually funny. My first job out of school, a kind of college was in direct mail working for, um, Esquire and popular mechanics. And, um, and I would create like the insert cards in the, in the <laughs> magazines, but I, I had a, I had kind of a, a, a good foundation for direct mail and that was seen as a dying industry. And now everyone is doing catalog. So it's definitely not dying. Direct mail is, and it's great for a company like ours where we have such beautiful imagery to show to customers and we can show them in their home. So I think that's, that's also um, really powerful. Well, exactly. I mean, it, it, it is funny, as you say, catalogs were being written off and everybody said, who wants those? And now everybody's tripping over themselves to have a great catalog and, and a great mailing list to your point about circulation. Right. It's so, you know, I think a lot of people say that they hear about us or, you know, know us from our catalogs. And I don't think that's how they first heard. But I think it's creating that, um, you know, that it's really creating a memory for them because they're, you know, they're able to kind of delve in and see all the imagery and new product and they're remembering it. So I, I think it's been really, really successful. Actually, Barbara Berry, speaking of Barbara Berry, she had um, <laughs> written me a couple months ago and said, you know, I just got your catalog and I'm, I think it's so beautiful and, you know, was so impressed and it just meant, 
it was really a, an amazing moment for me. I was so happy. Yeah. I mean, I, again, for listeners who don't know who Barbara Berry is, you should look that up because Barbara Berry was the designer that set the tone back in the day for so much of the industry. And her her product introductions were massive and and really they were the they were the highlight of it. And certainly at, at High Point Market, you'd go and there'd be entire buildings full of Barbara Berry introductions. Yes. You know, there's these moments, I think, when, you know, early mentors reach out and say uh, that they are watching from the sidelines or that they're impressed that make you think, okay, maybe I'm doing something right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and how great that she reached out. How often do you do a catalog? We do. I mean, we had one almost every month. So I think like maybe maybe 10 a year. I'm not I'm not positive, but maybe 10 a year. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Leloy. For almost 20 years, Leloy has not only made its name in home textiles at all price points, but also in customer service. Members of the trade have dedicated Leloy sales representatives to answer their needs an easy-to-use sales program and fast shipping directly from Leloy's warehouses. Learn more at LeloyRugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I Rugs.com. For an inside look at all things Leloy, follow at Leloy Rugs on Instagram and TikTok. And now, back to the show. Recently, when you and I were talking, I said, oh, you know, damages is such a big issue and, and logistics and all of that. And you said, oh, that's the least of my problems. So, <laughs> so, so A, is damages not a big deal for, for you? Is that not a problem? I mean, uh, as, as you pointed out, you sell a lot of rugs and so not a lot of damages in, in rugs, but you sell a lot of other things too. No, yeah. Damages, damages are, are a problem in any e-commerce business. But I mean, I think that when you asked about, you know, shipping and freight issues and supply chain, those issues were larger during COVID for sure. I mean, that was everybody's right. issue. They couldn't get sure. product, right? Now that now that demand is a little less and we're 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 post COVID, that is not that is not the same major issue. And I mean, the issue with um, you know freight and how to get these products to customers that was have been an issue since day one for us. So I mean, it's not like. I, I think that that's that's nothing new, right? And we're always trying to improve our packaging and and reduce damages. And we've done actually a great job at that. And, and now our you know our damage rate and return rate has gone way down. So when we're talking right now, that's definitely not our not our biggest challenge. <laughs> well, so tell me what is your biggest challenge right now? I think that um, the e-commerce landscape changes every day, specifically as it relates to digital marketing, but also to new technology. You have to be really nimble and ready to adapt and embrace those changes. You know, like the newer changes, you know, the, we talked about about people not being on Instagram and Facebook as much and, you know, aren't as engaged with the content and shifting strategy to other platforms. There's always a Google change, conversations about cookies and privacy. You know, I think it's easier to be nimble when you're smaller. So a challenge for us is maintaining that flexibility as we grow. The site is on 24-7, so we are all on 24-7. So there's you, you, we don't close or ever take a break. I can't be like, let's close for between Christmas and New Year's because the site <laughs> is still on and customers are still writing in. People can use the site anywhere at any time. So that constantly being on, I think, and not being able to just pause ever and say, okay, let's reassess what we're doing here. 
there's also so many changes in terms of new technology that you really have to be on top of. And, you know, as we talk about AI and new things for the future, but, but needing to be more on top of those things as an e-commerce business. So talk to me about AI. We're talking about it a lot at Business of Home. And I, it, it certainly seems as if it's coming for the design industry in a big way. It does seem like that. I mean, we're not we're not investing in any AI technology, but I, I do think that that will be the case. I think it will take the place of a lot of uh, a lot of job functions, a lot of um, easy technical designs. I think will it will take the place of a lot of our data processes, which will make our that part of it will be positive. But as we get into the conversation about actual product design, I think it gets kind of um, scary. Scary because you can you can see what it might be capable of doing, or yeah, because it could it could take over you know the role of of product design. Um, and my husband's an, a writer, and the writers are striking now, and AI is a big topic there as well. Like what what it, what can AI take over? And yeah, I think that's going to be a big topic in the near future. We were having a debate internally and externally about. Is this something that does affect a lot of people's business? And, and a lot of interior designers had mentioned, oh, gee, if, if something happens with the writer's strike, that, that actually is going to affect our business. Well, I'm sure in Los Angeles, I mean, a lot of the clients here are in the entertainment industry. So, yes, it does affect everyone for sure. And I mean, it, you know, it affects agents, it affects the lawyers, it affects, you know, everybody kind of surrounding the writers as well. So it, it'll have a big effect if it goes on for a long time here. Yeah, no, but it, it's interesting though because so often when I talk, particularly high end designers, they say, "Oh, you know, my my client base is so well to do that none of these none of these issues that bother you and me, Sarah, seem to bother the the the, the well to do." But I'm not sure that's really true. Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting that trade is growing at a larger uh, you know larger growth rate than D 2 C at this moment, and so I am mm. wondering if the you know the the um, well-to-do are not as affected by this kind of recession that we're in um, right now. So that, cause yeah. that would be right. The, the theory there that, that they're not as affected. And do you, and do you feel as though we are in a recession for all the talk about labeling it and, Oh, are we, aren't we? I mean, it feels like a recession, right? It, it does. Yeah. It definitely feels like consumers are, are spending less. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or being more and being more considerate about their purchases. And so, how does that show up for you? I mean, do, do they do they take longer to to make a decision? Is that part of what you start to see? Does it is it volume itself starts to decline? I mean, how does it show up? Yeah, I think it's the consideration window that it's taking longer to to make a purchase, and the conversion rate isn't isn't as strong. I think that that is that is how it's how it's showing up. You know, I think that we're still growing year over year. And um, I think that these moments are a great opportunity to also refocus on certain aspects of the business where we can, you know, really be more solid operationally and logistically. Since, you know, our inception, we've been growing so such huge numbers year over year. And that's not always the best for a business because you do mm. have to you do have to create the infrastructure in order to um to make that growth scalable and sustainable. Sarah Sherman Samuels told us she was so happy to have all of her product up on your site when COVID arrived. That helped her get through some of the hard times. <laughs> so, so I imagine you experienced a, 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 a big a big boom when when all of that first started 
happening. COVID, yes. I mean, yes. for sure. Um, I think for the whole industry. And, it, you know, I remember closing the office, thinking we'd be back in two weeks, panicking a bit. March and April, I remember March and April of 2020, panicking a bit, thinking, I don't know what this is going to look like. I remember, you know, different advisors kind of saying, you should make your list of layoffs now. And I was like, let's just wait it out. Let's see a little bit. And then it became very clear, I think, maybe toward the end of April, May, that it was going to have the opposite effect on our business. And really, there was a lot of lot of demand. And yes, yeah, Sarah Sherman Samuel, I mean, it's, <laughs> that, that product does, does exceptionally well for us. She's very, very talented. You know, I'm so inspired. I'm really lucky to be able to work with her, not only because she's such a, a, a great person and we're friends, but also, you know, because she's so creative and it's amazing to be around talented people. No, no question. So we see the whole industry appearing to readjust now from this post-COVID period and everyone coming to terms with those, those sales numbers and just all that crazy activity level dying down. And, and many people say something similar to what you were saying, oh, so it gives us a little time to catch our breath, reassess, look what we could be doing better You've talked repeatedly about the fact that you you think there's there's still growth to be had because it's not a zero sum game and you're still gaining market share and and there are still opportunities right to to chip away take some more take some more business away from Wayfair right that would make you happy yeah I mean I don't know that I I don't look at it that way you know I I come from a law of abundance there's enough for everyone yeah I'm not looking to take Wayfair's business nor do I think we really have the same customer because you know that customer is is you know is, is not really looking for curation and, um, mm. you know, I think that, that that that's kind of more of an Amazon marketplace model, which I don't really think that, you know, we play in that space. But um, but yes, of course, I think that there's tons of opportunity to be had. I think we're, we're small. I still feel like, you know, I still feel like the small like underdog who's going, you know, when we went to used to go to the market for the first times and people would look at me and I'm like this five foot, you know, 20 something year old at the time. And, <laughs> um, and I had a site called Lulu in Georgia. So it didn't help me at all, you know, and they were like, what are you doing? I, I still feel, I still feel like that, even though I know that we are, we are far away from that moment. I, I, I still feel like that. So I think we have, we have a ton of opportunity ahead. So you still feel like the underdog, you still feel like this small scrappy, Still stapling those invoices together. <laughs> We're not doing that, but I, but I mean, I yes, I definitely still still feel that way. You know, I'd love to maintain that scrappiness as we as we get larger, because really that scrappiness is a is a perseverance. It's mm. an entrepreneurial mindset. It's a passion that I think that you lose sometimes in these large corporations. It's harder to kind of create that, especially when you have a job for every single function and, you know, no one's kind of, everybody's siloed and it's it's hard to kind of have that that same feeling. So I hope that we always kind of have that underdog mentality as, you know, I know Sarah Sherman Samuel talked on her, I listened to her interview with you and she talks about how we used to call ourselves farm girls. And that was something that we said that right. she was a farm girl too. Right. And um, which is funny because I grew up in the Valley, which is nothing like a farm, but it is, <laughs> it is, it is a state of mind as Sarah says. Well, and one of the things that you, that you just said actually, that 
that does happen so often as businesses grow is that people get into more and more very specific roles and they go from wearing lots of hats, right? And and the energy that that goes along with that when you've got a lot of different balls in the air and and you're just making it happen. And then suddenly, no, we just want you to do this one thing all the all the time. And sometimes you lose a little bit of that energy or that drive or that hunger perhaps. Yes, and the and the collaboration because no longer, you know, you have all these people who have great ideas for other aspects of the business and it's hard sometimes to extract that when they're so mm. siloed. So I think, you know, uh, we I hope that we're um maintaining that collaboration and that openness to ideas even if you're in marketing that you have an idea for buying and vice versa and that people are receptive, but um you know, that's hard to build that that type of culture. I mean, I think we do have an amazing culture. We have a lot of people who are super, you know, super passionate about what we're doing and have been with us since the beginning. So um, hopefully we can build that as we as we grow, grow larger. So what do you think for you, the key to that next big growth spurt is going to be? Is it another great collaboration? Is it is it is it an expansion of your offering? I mean, what what do you think would really move the needle? I think it's all of the above. I mean, we have some really exciting new collaborations in the work. So I and I think those always those always help build the business. And um, we really have we really have found a way to identify talent. I think even before they've they've gotten bigger, you know, like Sarah and, and Sarah Sherman Samuel and um, Lula and Georgia, we grew up together. So I think mm. that that that's been been nice to find those types of people. In terms of product categories and and you know more product depth in certain categories, I think that's a big part of our um, of our growth. And then also, you know, uh, as I spoke about, you know, going um, to, uh, to different markets, we get so much so many inquiries um, from other international markets that I think could be could be great as a growth strategy. But you feel in the U.S. there's still so much room for for growth. For sure, and I mean, there's so many people. There's so many people who have heard about us. Um, you know, where I'm amazed, where you know, you say, oh, you know, yeah, you know, when people ask me what I do, and then they're like, oh my God, Lulu and Georgia, and they're such fans of the brand. But there's so many people who haven't. Um, so there's there there's a lot of potential there. Even with a million Instagram followers. Even with a million Instagram followers. Well, there's way more than a million customers out there. Yes, to be sure. And and it, it, it just shows it is so hard to build brand recognition, right? I mean, it, you throw yourself at it and you and you think you've gotten scale, but it, it's it's really challenging. Yeah, I think that, um, and I think that that's the key to to those the success is is building a brand because that is the thing that doesn't you know when I say that we don't watch our competitors as closely I think it's because um, we're focusing on building a brand that sets us apart and that's you know at the end of the day what's going to differentiate us and why people shop with us is really the brand and our aesthetic. So you keep your head down. You don't even look at Kathy Kuo's site or uh, Ashley and uh, Chad Stark and what they're up to. You're not even paying attention <laughs> really, to that, right? Really, really not very often. Not very often, <laughs> especially the ones you named. Not very often. Mm, okay, so what do you look at? Who do you look at? <laughs> no, I'm Who just do joking. you say? I'm just yeah. joking. I, I, no. no, I don't. I think that we have our own path, right? And you can't okay. get you can't get too um, too bogged down in what in what competitors are doing. No, no, I, I understand. I mean, it's it's interesting to see the success that RH has found with the formula that they've created, and and there are probably things to be learned from from that, right? 
you know, RH is doing such an incredible job with the stores and creating such an aspirational spaces and making it so easy for the customer to to just pick everything from RH. Yeah. But that's not that's not our model. So I, I definitely admire that, but I, I don't think that's our model. I think you know, one thing I look at um, that our competitors are doing that we're we're not there yet is design services. So mm. providing design, you know, design help to their customers, which I think is great. I think um, a lot have uh, our competitors are strong in loyalty, um, you know, creating points and rewards for loyal customers and VIP customers. So I think there's things that their competitors are doing that we definitely look to and see our, as successes. So is that something, I mean, even Ikea has finally come on board with design services saying that they're going to offer that in, in store. So, I mean, is that a, is that a department you were thinking yes, about building? Yes, yes, definitely. I think that that is very valuable. I think the thing that actually, um, one of our biggest barriers to entry is that people don't know how to um, create their space. Hmm. And we try through a lot of visualizations and, um, you know, all of our imagery to help them with that. But I think mm. that they still, you know, sometimes need some handholding and, um, I'd love to be able to provide that for them. Okay. So looking, looking to roll that out sometime, sometime soon. <laughs> sometimes, is that, is, is... It'll be rolled out sometime. Yeah. <laughs> sometime in the near future. Stay tuned yes. for that. And, yes. and some big collaboration. Do you want to hint at some big collaboration? I don't know, if, I can hint, uh, I I don't know, know. if I can hint on it, but we have, we have some really, we have some really good ones in the works. I'm really excited. So clearly you see some dials to turn to grow the, the, the business and, and more partnerships and, and more services sound like, uh, like a big part of the answer. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is a, a piece of the a piece of the puzzle for sure. I think, you know, I, I think anything that will help the customer, you know, in their in their purchasing, you know, journey, I think is 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 helpful. And going all of this time without venture capital or without some big investor, does it make you think now you'd you'd love some some big infusion of, of capital or we don't need that big infusion of capital in order to grow, which puts us in a really good position to be able to do wherever, you know, whatever we want for our future. So we were able to grow. I, we've had a lot of success without any outside capital, without that big infusion of money. I actually don't know that I'd want that because I think, again, that comes with expectations that aren't mm. always realistic. So I, I think it's also why we've been able to maintain that kind of we have had a very lean team. We've been able to keep our expenses low. And that's because I run the business like a regular business, not like a venture backed business. So I think um, I, I want to, again, maintain that culture. So venture capitalists that are listening to this show, I should tell them not to bother to, to call. I mean, don't, <laughs> don't even. I mean, they're, they're calling anyway. I'm sure they are. <laughs> I'm sure more they are. More RPE than, than VC at this more, point. More private equity yes. than, than venture. Well, we're going we're gonna to check back in with you because I'm, I'm hearing a little wavering in your voice, but we'll, uh, but we'll see. But I, I thank you so much for making the time to talk with us. Yes, thank you. So great talking. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. 
I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.